Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today's episode is an HHTR flashback favorite. We're exploring beneath the human hood. You know, the brain is a marvelous machine. Let's join the conversation with Dr. Todd Cashton that originally aired in October of 2014. My guest today is Dr. Todd Cashton. He is the co-author of The Upside of Your Dark Side. And we'll get on to that subject matter in one second. I want to give you a little bit of, of the background of Dr. Cashin. He is a professor of psychology and senior scientist at the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University. He is a world-recognized authority on the science of well-being, strengths, relationships, stress, and anxiety. His honors include faculty member of the year and early career awards from the American Psychological Association, Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, as well as the International Society for Quality of Life Studies. He's published a ton of scholarly articles, hundreds of them, and authored several books, Curious, Discovering the Missing Ingredient to a Mindful Life, Designing Positive Psychology and Mindfulness, Acceptance and Positive Psychology, and his new book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. Welcome, Dr. Cashton. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Oh, this is this is great. We, I, I'm glad that we're bringing this up because everybody says, you do what for a living? You are an applied positive psychology coach. You are Mrs. Happiness. How annoying. And I love telling people, no, 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 no. That's really not what all of this is about. So here is a book that invites us to delve into the hard facts of life. That's right. So, I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> well, good. That, that makes my job actually really easy. But you argue that people are not whole. What is wholeness? To me, wholeness is being comfortable with all the different sides of your personality. 
And I like to think of personality as one of those 16-sided dies that used to come with Dungeons & Dragons board games, role-playing games. And there are some sides that are socially beloved. So if you think of your kindness, your compassionate side, your loving side, your bright, optimistic side, but there are other sides that are less socially accepted but are just as valuable in certain situations. And we dive into grandiose narcissism and selfishness and anger and anxiety and sadness and mindlessness. And when you're comfortable with exposing and harnessing all the sides of your personality to get the best possible outcome in situations that you end up in, you're talking about somebody that's experiencing wholeness. I like what you just said, and I'm going to just parrot what you said to me. I agree with everything you just said because I think it's... (laughs) I think it's really important that we show up for life aligned. You know, if we're standing in a situation where there is a social injustice, for example, and um, people think of us as being, in general, very kind, very happy, very optimistic, but there's something going down that is really not okay, to sort of stand in your truth and be able to react appropriately to the situation, which might not always be so kind and so compassionate, but it might be just given the condition, is part of being in integrity and, and whole, as you describe. Yeah, and what's great about the example you gave is, because I, you know, I want to make a big point, is when you are narcissistic or selfish, doesn't mean you're a narcissistic person or a selfish person, but what I love about your example is when you see in John, I mean, I'm on a college campus right now, and I know I'm raising three women who are now under seven, and I'm on a campus where one in four women are going to be sexually assaulted. And when I have this experience of social injustice, when something happens or almost happens, it's not even a momentary feeling of anger. It's actually, I am motivated not to retreat from the world, from that emotion when I am open to it and listening to it and expressing it, which doesn't mean rage. It doesn't mean I'm going to go out and harm, physically harm the, the assailants. What it means is I am going to be at the crux of motivation to make change. And it might be that anger might last for weeks, months, might even influence my entire life. And all of that is quote-unquote positive because I'm making the world a better place than when before that emotion arose. And that is the the gist of everything that we talk about on this show, everything that really I, I believe that positive psychology hopes to be. You know, where we're living these lives of passion, a purpose, a place of meaning, which we talk about, you know, every week here. And this is what makes people great. You know, it's a call to yes. greatness. When you're saying, you know, to, to, to be whole, to embrace those parts of yourselves, you know, the kind, sweet, gentle, loving, a- a- empathic, compassionate side, and then also perhaps these more gritty sides or um, sides of ourselves and, and nature that society doesn't necessarily deem as sweet. But it does make us um, stand up and own it and make change. You know, I, I think about you, you open up talking about people that are positive psychologists, happiness coaches, the happiness consultant industry and business is happening right now. And I think to myself, you know, what if George Patton had been exposed to a happiness consultant that came into the army? And what if you know, Steve Jobs had been exposed to a happiness consultant when he was in Apple or Pixar. And you realize 
that the springboards to the highest peaks do not go through a linear route through positivity and universal love at all times. And if you even listen to the Dalai Lama, who is the biggest proponent of compassion and love will change the world, if you listen to a very long conversation with him, he will talk about being aghast at a number of people and a number of countries and a number of traditions that are happening around the world. So in this message of love and compassion, he was he was upset about you know New, or- New Orleans and the amount of licentiousness and you know and free form jazz and love that was happening there that he wasn't that upset when they had Hurricane Katrina and when you know when it comes to China it took him years to develop a sense of forgiveness where he could attempt to get on the world stage and try to you know reduce geopolitical conflict and. You know, one of the things that I strongly believe, which which was the motivation to write this book, was that if we want to change the world, and I think a lot of your listeners do, what and because changing the world is raising good, healthy kids, you know, um, being a teacher, you know, um, being a crossing guard, being a librarian that exposes somebody someplace to a book that serendipitously puts them on a different direction in life. If we want to change the world, whether it's reducing conflict, um, having more emotionally intelligent leaders, having more creativity taught in the schools and valued, we have to see people as they are, not as we want them to be or not as we would like them to be. And when we, when we, we filter out sides of the personality, such as the angry side, the quarrelsome side, the narcissistic side, we don't see people as they are. And our kids don't have any real role models that they can actually follow. Mm, you make a very, very good point about the role models for the children. I am the parent of two teenagers, one who is college-bound next year. And we do have this conversation about, you know, a generalized conversation around the dinner table about this very issue. You know, what what role models do young people have today? You know, you have the one side that is the compassionate, loving kindness. You know, my kids call it the group hug, you know, the kumbaya circle. And then you have this political circle that is striving to make a change in the world, perhaps with a, a, a more loud, strident voice. But who do the kids have? You know, who do the children really have? What is a role model for your, your seven-year-olds, your little ones, for example? I mean, one of my dreams, this is, the, this is the, the long road for me, is to create a curriculum for the schools where you teach people about the role of Thomas Jefferson, the Martin Luther King, the Martha Grahams, the Picassos, but you expose all their ugly vulnerabilities and, fa- and failings as well, right? Martin Luther King had, you know, cheated on his wife, and Mahatma Gandhi had a horrible relationship with his son. Picasso, you know, is known for, you know, having a horrible relationship with all of his kids. Is that when you do this, you don't bring them down off the pedestal. You make them a, you make that great attainment possible because you're like, oh my God, they're human. And they, and they have all of these vulnerabilities and weaknesses just like me. And not only do I resemble them, but I actually have strengths that they don't, I see that they don't even possess versus they're untouchable. And, they're, and they don't resemble, we, we've, we've cleaned them up so they don't resemble a normal human being anymore. We're going to need to take that break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. 
Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to an HHTR flashback favorite. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Todd Kasdan that originally aired in October of 2014. Before the break, we got into this conversation about comfort addiction, really is what it's called, and about how we are so adverse to being in the slightest bit ill at ease with ourselves that we've developed a whole lot of coping mechanisms, which Dr. Cashin is going to share with us, that um, we're using to deal with not being able to deal with stress or distress. And I see it every day in my practice. I'm sure you see it multiple times a day as well. One of the most interesting studies that I think our lab, my research lab, has produced is to figure out what separates people that are, and I'm talking about adults in the community, not those weird bizarre creatures called college students. What <laughs> separates people that have that are psychologically healthy from those that have an anxiety disorder? And what we found was, and we had everyone carry around, you know, a smartphone and we beat them eight times a day to get there, realize what's happening. And what we so we had people who are suffering from social anxiety disorder, um, a fear, a chronic fear of being rejected and judged by other people, such that they weren't even socializing. And healthy people. And, and what we found was there was no difference between healthy people and people with an anxiety disorder on their anxiety when socializing, which dif- disagrees with everything that this disorder is supposed to be about. And there was no difference in the amount of, of distress in their lives on a day-to-day basis. The major difference that separated these two groups, healthy people and people with an anxiety disorder, is that the people with the anxiety disorder went, were unwilling to be in contact when, with their anxious thoughts and feelings when they arose. They would go out of their way to try to neutralize them, change them to be something more positive, drink themselves into oblivion, exercise so they would just ex- try to exercise it off, or even something as healthy as having sex as a tool not to connect with someone, not to have this, you know, this amazing, physically, aesthetically beautiful experience, but to get rid of their anxiety. And when you do that, when you're unwilling to be in contact with the stress, you cannot get out of your head and back into your life. You end up numbing yourself 
to the most meaningful, pleasurable moments. You can't just get rid of the anxiety. You get rid of just you get rid of feeling, and that's what we discovered. And that's what I see every day. I, you know, I um, I work with a lot of people in addiction recovery, and we've had this discussion about really distraction addiction. How it's impossible for us to just sit and be with our ourselves and our feelings and what comes up. That every single one of us possesses a mighty little device, which I'm sure yours is sitting right next to you. Mine is that is like the perfect um, companion when we are feeling discomfort. You know, that little phone that does everything can distract us from our lives and take us away from even savoring the good moments. You know, forget even the bad moments. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The last book that I wrote was called Curious. And the thing that I bemoan the most about writing that book is I never wrote a chapter about the value of boredom. And, you know, there's, it's so, you know, I think of, all the college students that I meet as I teach my classes who are uncomfortable or unwilling to just be by themselves online at the grocery store and online at the movie theater or waiting for a bus or just walking from point A to point B and they have to pull out a smartphone. And what happens is when you do that, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get upset about, you know, the beauty of having access to data that I could look up, you know, information of the Civil War how did it affect people in Madagascar? What I'm saying is that when we lose those moments of self-reflection, what does that do to our personal growth as it aggregates over the course of time? And I think that one thing that happens over days and weeks and months and years of not allowing time to be physically and mentally available with no other external stimulation to distract us is we don't get to know ourselves. We don't have a good language to describe what emotions we're feeling. We don't have a good idea in terms of why am I going to college? Why am I in this line of work? Is my relationship satisfactory? Um, what can, what am I contributing to my friendships that allows them to be their best possible incarnation? You know, these are tough questions and you can, there's no quick answers and it requires us to actually, you know, to take some serious reflection time and, and do you make space for that? If you don't, you're going to need coaches, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists who are going to guide you. But these are things you can do yourself. Agreed. And what are, what are some simple, easy steps that we can share with the listeners um, to enable them to simply just make more space and awareness in their lives? And we don't mean it like in a, a pat, you know, self-help ritual. We mean like serious stuff that you can just simply do immediately to put into effect. I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the first things that that I think is you have to stop thinking from the neck, from the the neck up, and start working from the neck down. Is we know it's called embodiment in the field, cognitive embodiment in the field of psychology, which is jargon just to make us sound smart. But what this means is is how our physical body reacts to situations influences our thoughts and feelings. And so, if we're not comfortable in our body, if we're not fit in terms of a strong cardiovascular system, if we don't have strong lung capacity, we will actually have all of these false signals that we are, um, you know, anxious and uncomfortable in the world when really it's our body is not strong. And 
conversely, when we make our body more strong and agile and have physical balance, I mean, could you balance on a balance board back and forth without falling off and have a strong spine? Is when you do this, you actually, it carries over. Such when you feel physically grounded, standing physically grounded such that with a posture, with your legs apart and your knees bent so that someone couldn't push you over, you actually psychologically feel stronger, tougher, and have greater ability to withstand and understand difficult thoughts and feelings. And so making sure that it's neck up and neck down is an important first tip for improving your well-being. I love that. And the word that popped into my mind or words that popped in my mind when you were talking was this sense of being self-possessed and not in a selfish way, but really being being in your body, being comfortable in your own skin. And we are we're not taught that how to be comfortable in our own skin. Yeah, which leads to other strategies. You know, and there's tons of what I'm, what I'm really talking about is small behavioral experiments. Like, treat your life like a scientist. Nobody knows how to live a good life. Nobody knows the secret to being a good parent. Nobody knows how to parent. This is actually a relatively new phenomenon because it's only the last 70 years that your kids didn't work on the farm with you. So in 70 years, nobody has figured this out. And don't trust any of us experts who say we do. We do little small behavioral experiments. So, you know, express an unpopular idea and see what happens. Notice how you can alter people's, other people's emotional reactions. Notice when you get angry, when you express it um, with your fist, when your fist clenched or your face, you know, in a contorted, how that affects other people's feelings and behavior versus when you just say it very calmly. You know what? I don't like the way you're talking to me. Notice the difference in terms of how you affect other people. When you start doing this, where you express unpopular emotions and express unpopular ideas, and you jot mental notes in terms of how does it affect and influence and persuade other people, and you learn this, um, this is how you get better at navigating your social world. And there's, there's small experiments. And normally, we just we move around, we react, we read, we react, and we just go through this quick cycle of having the same types of interactions over and over. What I'm saying is just uh, you don't have to whip out a notebook, but mentally you should be jotting down of like, oh, if I cry, people don't run away from me. They run towards me, right? Do, but does, do you remember the last three times you cried, how people reacted to you with a tear versus without tears? You're just understanding this cause and effect relationship with other people is an important step to getting towards well-being. And, you know, here I am, uh, um, one of the people running a clinical psychology PhD program, and my big belief right now is therapy without therapists. And I love, you know, all these health, health smartphone apps that are just giving, as you're saying, they're just small tips to make inroads into difficult situations. I mean, one of the things we know is if you, the more that you believe that anger has value, it actually has more value. And we're not talking about the, the secret or the law of attraction. We're talking about if you believe that anger is useful in negotiating with your friends where to go out for dinner or um, 
dealing with conflicts with your family members over, you know, what you're going to do this summer vacation. And we're not talking about rage. We're talking maybe irritation. Maybe we're talking about, um, you know, just this being um, annoyed. Is when you're able to express it and you feel that it's useful, it becomes effective because it influences the way that you express it. And when you can express anger, because you can express anger and sadness and anxiety in a mindful or an unmindful way. Mindfulness is not about getting rid of these emotions or neutralizing them. It's about seeing them for what they are and taking what's called right action. That's what mindfulness is supposed to do. And somehow in the West, in the United States, it's been warped into, I'm going to take yoga classes so I feel less anxious and depressed. Well, that's good luck because after you're done, you can't take your yoga mat into work and pull it out and do downward dog when someone says that your idea sucks during a brainstorming meeting. Uh, you're right. I'm I, I'm giggling because I you know I have the image of you know chanting the downward dog coming out of class, but then I also hold this image of taking the yoga off the mat, you know, and taking that practice into the world in a different way. So the yoga be- becomes something of a of a dynamic action. You know, how am I going to be with myself when I'm pissed off? Am I going to own it? Am I going to express it? Am I going to do something of value with it, or am I going to let it own me? Right. And this is where mindfulness is a fantastic intervention for really any emotion, positive or negative. Absolutely. And, and I think that the big message, take-home message with this particular segment that I want to say with that is do not use mindfulness to get rid of uncomfortable emotions. It's to be a curious scientist exploring what's going on in your mind. Because as soon as you make it, as soon as you make it, it's no different than big pharma of just popping some pills. It's this, you're, you're escaping stressful situations, and that's where the cycle starts, where you end up having, as you're describing, um, your stress ends up eating you alive. There is a, a, a phrase that I love. It's consider the uses of adversity. That, you know, when we look at all of the uncomfortable stuff that we want to avoid or numb out with either our devices or our distractions or other thoughts or other people when we really just say, okay, well, this, this feeling is just a feeling. Let me, let me investigate this a little further and become more of a witness of what that feeling is and sort of, you know, look at it as if you were observing a piece of art in the museum. You know, what is it that you notice when you look at a piece of art? You know, it's composition, it's color, it's lighting, it's angles, shadows, whatever. You can apply that same philosophy to dealing with the stuff that's going on in your life without being attached to it. Yeah, because, you know, if of all the people I've met since I've been involved in psychology, you know, of who say to me, um, as soon as I get rid of my self-doubt, then I'll be ready for a long-term committed relationship as soon as I get as soon as I get rid of my anxiety that I'm going to be have a public speaking career and get in front of get in front of crowds as soon as I get rid of my sadness um, then I'm going to be able to finally be able to have a, a really good way of writing my memoir and I always say to them of when do you think this is going to happen when do you think like your your brain's going to stop being an ass to you and stop saying mean things to you and and just going to be your buddy and always agree with you. It's never going to happen. 
you'll never write those things. You'll never get in front of a crowd and you'll never be in a relationship. It's just, it's part of the human condition. And the question is, when do these emotions have merit in terms of helping us lubricate the way to working towards the things that we care about? And the important thing is the goal should never be to feel more positive than negative because it's kind of like making the goal of your, of getting a house is to have the temperature at the right level. It's, it's a thermos. Your emotions like a thermostat. They just give you an idea of what the heat is in the room right now. That's not something to strive towards. That's just some information about what's going on in the room. The question is, what direction do you want to go? And how do you start and start moving that way, regardless of what the temperature is? Well, the train has left the station. I mean, you know, we're alive, we're breathing, and the, the world is, is going. It's moving. And I think that you make a very good point that if we wait for that perfect condition, it ain't ever going to happen. We'll be crippled by waiting for the right moment for takeoff. So we go, yeah. you know, we, 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 we go and we leap and, and we uh, learn the blessings of a skin knee and, and figure it out. You know, there, there's another thing I, I love to share with, with, with clients, you know, like we are building the plane as we're flying, you know, it's happening yeah. one way or another. That's the, that, that's the other bit of advice is making the smallest possible unit of movement towards what you care about. That's what you have to start doing. I mean, the building blocks for a fulfilling life are these moments where we take movement towards what we care about. And sometimes on the way, we catch happiness, and sometimes we don't. You know, I tell I mean, I, always, I have, I have seven-year-olds. I just taught them how to ride a bike two years ago. And they still bring up, I love it because they still bring up the lessons that I told them, which is they can be so upset that they can't get up a hill, and yet they could still pedal or get off the bike and push the bike up the hill, even though they're upset and they're wiping away tears. And it's carried over two years later. They still talk about it, which is because I said it so many times. It's okay to be upset. You could trust me. There are plenty of times where I yelled and screamed. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a perfect <laughs> parent. Um, but in between those screams was me saying, you can move even though you're upset. And it's just, you know, it's just a cool lesson that even I have to be reminded over and over and over again. I could just be, completely, completely overflowing with emotions and still move my hands, move my feet, write things down, face people, look them in the eye and do things. And that's, you know, that's it. Trying and with all the books that are written about trying to be happier, which means inherently feel better, feel less bad. It's just, it's the wrong goal. It's the wrong, it's just, you can't do it. You, your hormones affect your mood. Temperature affects the mood. Circadian rhythm affects your mood. What spicy foods you eat affects your mood. So you can't control your mood. It's not a dial. You have control over all the time. We are out of time. Dr. Todd Cashton, thank you for being with us. I want to give your contact information once again, www.toddcashton.com. On Twitter, and on Twitter, it's Todd Cashton. And on Facebook, Todd B. Cashton. And the book is The Upside of Your Dark Side. Why being your whole self, not just your good self, drives success and fulfillment. Thanks for being with us. Let's take a quick pause. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain 
Happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control: ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to an HHTR flashback favorite, focusing on exploration beneath the human hood. You know the brain is such a marvelous machine, and we're going to continue the conversation with Don J. Gowie. This episode originally aired in April of 2016. Let's have a listen. With me today is Don Joseph Gui. He is the managing partner of Pro Attitude, a human performance firm with the mission of elevating the experience of work in corporate America. He is the author of three books, including The End of Stress: Four Steps to Rewiring Your Brain. Don previously managed Stanford's Department of Psychiatry, directed a regional paramedic emergency system, and headed the Center for Attitudinal Healing, an internationally recognized institute that pioneered a psychosocial approach to overcoming catastrophic life events. Welcome, Don. Thanks for joining us. Oh well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. This is this is such a hot topic. Every, everybody's got stress from from uh, our kids to ourselves. To the people we deal with on a daily basis, is it really possible to end stress? Yeah, it is possible. You know, the you were t- talking at the top of the hour about attitude. The biggest reason people are stressed is because the stress gene they inherited is turned up high. It's called upregulating, and so this accounts for fifty percent of why you're stressed. If you're stressed, and particularly if you're chronically stressed. And then, of course, there's our circumstances that stress us. You know, the money problems, job problems, family problems. But it turns out that circumstances only account for about 10% of what makes life stressful and un- and unhappy. Um, you know, we often think a change of circumstances is what's needed to end a stressful life, but in actuality, it doesn't make a very big difference at all. The change that makes the biggest difference is a change of attitude. Attitude accounts for forty percent of what what either perpetuates a life of stress or transforms it into the good life, the life that you were just describing. And here's what's really hopeful: you know, research shows that a positive shift in attitude um, quiets the stress gene. It, in other words, it causes it to downregulate. And now that puts you in the driver's seat, gives you ninety percent chance of achieving a high quality of life. You know, now you're flowing with all that intelligence that's in your brain. Uh, including emotional intelligence, a very important factor in our success. And, you know, you're able to make your best day happen every day from your best self. 
Now you're in the position uh, to change your unwanted circumstances. You got the brain power to master your life. You got the brain power. Let's go back for a second and just revisit some of the things that you've just said because they are very powerful and very important. One thing I heard you say is that our circumstances only contribute to about 10% of our stress. So how we're relating to the issues as they come up in real time is only 10% of the factor, the condition itself, the external condition. And that 40% is the attitude. So how we are relating to those circumstances as they are happening. And that pretty much matches up with the um, uh, ratio of the happiness set point, right? Where 60% of our emotional uh, temperament is is, uh, how we're wired, genetic, it's in our DNA, and 40% is environmental. That's right. You know, it's really telling because, you know, when I coach people and work with people in workshops, um, most people start off with thinking, well, if, if I had a better job or if I had more money or if I, uh, you know, if I had a better partner, a sweeter wife or a husband or, or partner, everything would be better. You know, my mother used to call it, <laughs> well, my ship comes in. But it turns out, you know, in the studies that they've done, they found that people who, for example, win the lottery, for six months, they, they're elated. You know, it's a huge change in circumstances, certainly. Um, and for six months, they're, very, they're happy. They're, they're humming along. But after that six months, um, their genetic disposition changes their mood set point back to where it was before. And what they find is that, um, you know, their level of happiness goes back to what it was prior to getting all the money. And then they did studies on people who were paraplegic, who, who suddenly lost uh, the control of half of their body uh, due to an accident, a tragic accident of some kind. And they found with those people that for the first six months, they were clinically depressed. They could not have been more unhappy. But after six months, they came to the determination that if they didn't take hold of their attitude and find a way of turning this lemon into lemonade, in other words, uh, you know, generating the attitude that you're talking about to relate to these circumstances, their life was going to be twice as miserable. And most of those people made that shift, which is, which, you know, comes back to the point, your attitude determines your experience of life and your experience of life determines the degree to which you're going to succeed at life. And if you have a positive way of relating to, to whatever comes, all the ups and downs that come, Uh, you're going to do much better in life at every level of life that matters to you. Agreed. But I think we can also agree that that stress itself is not what's toxic, right? I mean, there's a good amount of stress is needed in order to catalyze change, to catalyze shift. So we're not talking about those kinds of challenges that um, call upon us to stretch. We're talking about the kinds of stress that have a physiological response to our bodies that in our bodies that actually can shorten lifespan. Well, when you take when you have a, a problem, when you face uh, some kind of adversity, um, and you're afraid of it, um, and you feel pessimistic about it, um, that's stress. And when you make that shift in attitude to that word you just used, challenge your stress level begins to drop. 
And what you see, what happens within your brain, your, your primitive brain, which is in, is in control of, of your experience when, when you're stressed, when you're afraid, it sets off stress reactions, it dumps stress hormones into your system, and those stress hormones debilitate the higher brain function that generates the fluid and creative intelligence to solve your problems, as well as the emotional and social intelligence that puts more joy into your work, instills more peace into your day, more love into your relationships more spring into your, your step. And all of that happens, all of that shift to higher brain power happens when you change your relationship to the situation. So when you get a problem initially, you might go, oh, no. But if your attitude changes to, to look at that problem more creatively, where it becomes a challenge, then, then you become excited, you become engaged with it, and your stress level drops. You're not dumping stress hormones into your system. And that's the good part of stress. If you can initially use it to help you see that you have a choice that you can make here um, in terms of your attitude, a, a, a choice that empowers you, 90 seconds, uh, you avoid all of the debilitating problems that stress cause. And make no mistake, Stress is a killer. If it becomes it's a chronic issue in your life, you need to change it because at the health level, it, it, it leads to heart attack, it leads to cancer, it leads to premature aging. And at the neurological level, it means debilitated brain function. Yes. And let's talk a little bit about the debilitated brain function versus optimal brain functioning because really we're talking about um, a different kind of brain science and research that is going on right now that is really proving that we can teach an old dog new tricks. You know, we talk about the happiness set point or we talk about the stress set point that comes from our DNA. But what science is bearing out, and this is really quite exciting, is through the discovery and development of, of, of neuroplasticity, we can actually train the brain. We can actually um, stimulate growth of new networks and connections in our brains. Talk a little bit about that and how it relates back to this theme. Well, you know, the, it, it, uh, neuroplasticity works uh, two ways. But I want to underline something that you said, is that what science is discovering, and, and the, it's a, really a new frontier in medical science, um, what they're discovering is that your mental state, um, has a great deal to do with determining uh, the, your biophysical um, state. In other words, your body determines your health. Um, it determines the, the level of um, energy and um, well-being that you enjoy. And it also determines um, the degree to which you maximize the, your brain power. You maximize those intelligences that I just talked about, the intellectual, the emotional, the social intelligence. And like I said, you know, if you're born, if you, if, you know, stress is a problem in your life, it means you were born with uh, the stress gene turned up high. And you can actually begin through a shift in attitude, a shift in mindset, primarily a shift from, from being uh, primarily fearful, uh, anxious in the way you relate to the world, to being more dynamically peaceful, more calm, creative, and optimistic as you relate to to circumstances. And as you do that, what begins to happen is that that higher brain function that, that makes you powerful and makes your brain powerful, 
it begins to come online and you begin to, it predicts a much more successful life in your career, with your family, with your own personal growth. You have the brain power to make those kinds of things happen. We're going to head out to that break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to an HHTR flashback favorite. Let's rejoin the conversation with Don J. Gowie that originally aired in April of 2016. So Don, let's talk about um, what happens to our bodies on stress. You mentioned the flow of cortisol. You mentioned the fact that it takes us out of the uh, good decision-making parts of our brains and takes us into a fight-or-flight response. Talk a little bit about what happens to our bodies. Well, you know, the biggest impact that stress has on our bodies is on our cardiovascular system. It amps it up. Uh, every time you have a stress reaction, you're dumping cortisol and, and particularly adrenaline into your system. It makes, uh, makes your heart work a lot harder. And over the long haul, it leads to, um, it leads to serious uh, cardiac conditions. And if you're type A, which is an extreme condition of stress, uh, your chances of dying of a heart attack are, are pretty high. It also disables our chromosomes. Um, stress hormones, our chromosomes are held together by, a, by an organic matter called telomeres. You know, chromosomes kind of spiral up, and so they need a little cap at the end. Well, stress hormones cause that cap to wither, and the uh, chromosomes start putting out abnormal cells that lead to cancer and particularly lead to premature aging. Uh, it impairs our immune system, which is why stressed people get more colds, get more flus, get more skin rashes. Um, it, it impairs our gastrointestinal system. You know, you pe people think of stress and ulcers. Well, that's why. It's, uh, part, of the, part of the mechanism in the stress reaction is, is that it shuts down all the long-term systems to gather the energy to put into the big muscles for fight or flight. Well, that means your immune system, your growth system, your, your um, reproductive system. That's why people who are stressed tend to have a low sex drive. And it kills brain cells. And, you know, over the long haul, if it's chronic, it can kill you. If you add up all of those 
ailments that I just listed, all of those life-threatening diseases, it's the number one killer of Americans. Indeed. And, and, and also, I think we should talk a little bit about some of the science that's emerging on memory, because yeah. it, it can impede short-term memory. Yeah, well, it can, can, can impede um, both long-term and short-term and working memory. You know, memory comes out of a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And um, they, uh, Robert Sapolsky at Stanford, he did a study of uh, war veterans, you know, who are under extreme stress and then afterwards have post-traumatic stress. He found out, found that their uh, hippocampus had been shrunk to the size of a raisin, you know, a tiny little thing. And it wasn't working very well. And what that meant was their emotional memory the memory, uh, you know, where the, that's located in the stress response system took over. So all of your emotional memories, which store all your traumas to prevent you from repeating them again, they, they play on the screen of your mind and they torture you, mm-hmm. keep you keep, have you walking the floor late at night. So that happens certainly within a, a soldier with a, a returning vet. That's going to happen to an extreme degree, but it happens to a lesser degree within each of us, you know, we, it's what wakes us up in the middle of the night frightened and we can't get back to sleep. Years That's the ago, emotional memory taking charge. Well, I, and I would love for you to share a personal example. Years ago, you experienced what you call a perfect storm of stress. Tell us about it. Well, yeah, 30 years ago, um, actually this January was 30 years ago, I experienced the, that perfect storm of stress. I lost my job. And nine days later, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor and I was warned by the surgeon to prepare myself for some really serious neurological disabilities. And um, I had I was married at the time with four children, so you can imagine the distress I was under. And I had to wait six weeks for the surgery, and I spent the first two weeks terrified, pacing the floor every night, afraid I'd never work again, which is one of the things that the doctor predicted, that my family would end up homeless. And then one fateful night, I reached a point where I questioned which was worse, you know, the dire problems that could happen to me in the future or the abject fear that had been happening to me every day since I was diagnosed, every day, all day long and into wee hours of the night. And it was clear to me at that moment that the fear was worse. So I made the decision right then and there to approach the surgery with a more peaceful attitude. Uh, simply by letting go of fearful thoughts. And and to my surprise, it worked. It was easier than I thought. Um, And long story short, the surgery turned out to be a complete success, spared me a life of disability. And uh, I got an even better job uh, pretty quickly after I'd recovered. And, you know, what was clear to me at that time was that my change in attitude from stressed and afraid to peaceful, and hopeful and optimistic was what made it happen, was what made the difference. Um, before that, I didn't think that such a thing, simple thing as a shift in attitude could create such an enormous outcome. But, you know, over the last 20 years, science has discovered that improving your mental state leads to highly beneficial outcomes. It's called the mind-body connection. And it, now we're, we're seeing that it, that it has huge ramifications um, like the power of suggestion. We actually can project uh, what we, our desires to manifesting just through, through our state of mind, our, our, our mental attitude. You can change your brain to transform 
a stressful life into the good life. And they did that for me. It's important to point out that what you and I are discussing are not simply wishing away bad circumstances, because this is where it crosses the line for some people who, you know, out there who are intelligent, rational, that say, well, that's who, that's woo-woo, that's hooey. And really what we're saying is bad things are happening, how we are relating to those bad things as they are occurring is, can be, not is, can be that turning point that actually empowers us to radically shift what is going on. Well, when we make that radical shift, we actually begin to see what we call, quote-unquote, bad circumstances in a very different light. When I worked at the Center for Attitudinal Healing, uh, we worked with people, we were right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic, at the height of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. We worked with people with cancer. We worked with people in refugee camps in Bosnia and Croatia. And when I ran the life-threatened group, people who were, uh, some would call terminally ill, um, I, routinely I heard people say, if I had to go back, and if I, if I was to lose my cancer, my cancer was to disappear, but it meant I had to go back and lose everything that it has taught me about the spiritual reality of me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exchange it. They're, you know, these bad circumstances, they're really classrooms in which yeah. they challenge us to, to rise above them. And um, that's what attitude does. You know, attitude, we can, we, our attitude either makes us a victim of circumstances or makes us greater than circumstances. And that's, that's, the, that's where personal power comes from. When we begin to see that, you have to, you have to step into it. Uh, that's one of the things that my, books help, help, my book helps people do, a step-by-step process of building that kind of attitude. And in, when you do that, you, you prove it to yourself, but you have to prove it to yourself. And once you prove it to yourself, your life is, is going to change dramatically. Because the one thing, you know, we don't control all of our circumstances. We don't control the weather. We don't control uh, the ups and downs that come along. But the one thing that we have complete control over is our attitude. And it's the one thing that makes us powerful in every situation. So we need to seize hold of it. And this is why I love to call our brains the human dashboard, because once we are able to um, you know, harness mastery in this arena, we really tend to experience life as a much more joyful process that doesn't mitigate the bad things that are happening. You know, I like to tell clients myself in practice, do not become what you fear. Yes, absolutely. You know, this, this That's is, absolutely the case. Yeah, it is the case. Now, you presently um, work in corporate America. You take these concepts, you take your program, and you go into businesses and teach big companies, major companies, um, how to better manage and harness stress. And perhaps we're even talking a little bit about post-traumatic growth, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, so that we, yeah, we go into corporations. Um, we do an eight-week training. It takes anywhere from four to six weeks for neuroplasticity to work, where you actually begin to notice that uh, you gravitate towards a positive attitude. You gravitate towards optimism, joy, a more peaceful, calm way of dealing with things um, in, in a more automatic way. And when that happens, you, it's the indication that, you, that your brain has changed. And when we go into corporations um, and we walk people through this one hour a week, um, 
what ends up happening at the end of uh, eight weeks is that there's a 40% reduction that people report in their level of stress, and that's twice what stress management used to get. You know, stress management was about changing your behavior um, in ways that could reduce your stress, but neuroplasticity is about changing your mind to change your brain to eliminate stress so that you, you literally transcend it. You're not managing it anymore. You're transcending um, the things that pull you, pull you down, pull you into the storm. And then what we see with people is that we see um, r- rise in their creativity, their productivity in their work and professional relationships. They feel a greater sense of uh, work-life balance. And all of those are indicators of brain function, higher brain function coming on online in a more powerful way. You know, something comes to mind as you're talking about doing this in uh, a community or in the tribe, and, and, and there's the work tribe and the home tribe, and, and how that all balances out is, is a whole other show. But when we experience this kind of training together with other people, it creates a sense of intimacy, connection, and, and well-being. That unto itself is, is elevational. That's really true. It, create, it creates a kind of synergy. Yes. Um, when, you know, when we're about a third of the way through the training, the eight-week training we do in corporations, one of the things that begins to take over is that people begin to report how they're using a particular tool or a shift that happened for them, you know, a particular situation that always got the better of them, always stressed them out, that wasn't stressing them out because they were able to to make that shift, to use a tool to make that shift. And that goes much further in in, uh, teaching the others in the group what's possible than my sitting up and talking about it, you know. So people people bounce off of each other. They leverage themselves off of each other, and it creates a kind of synergy. And one of the things that we see in in these corporate trainings we do is it actually begins to change the work culture, which I think points back to what you said at the beginning of the show is that as we begin to make this shift and we begin to make it this shift with other people, the world around us begins to improve. And, you know, if anything, you know, it's the old, old saying, be the change you want to see in the world. Yes. And that happens at a level of community. That's how Don, it gets translated laid in that way. Don, Joseph, Gui, we are out of time. And that means you'll have to come back and carry on the discussion with me. I've so enjoyed having you on the show, but I want to give your contact information once again. The book is The End of Stress, Four Steps to Rewiring Your Brain by Simon & Schuster. Um, You can find out more at the website, theendofstressbook.com. On Twitter or at Twitter, you can reach Don at The End of Stress. And on Facebook, Books by Gui, and that's G-O-E-W-E-Y. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on this HHTR flashback favorite. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Todd Kasdan and Don J. Goey, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.